Hello, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 27, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Hey, today, September 27th, is National Voters Registration Day. And if you've heard any of my other shows, you know how important voters registration is. And voters literacy follows right after that. Today, UCI climate scientist James Randerson will be given the opportunity to scare listeners, that's you, into stepping up your game toward climate change. During the second half, a trio of researchers, Ashley Joe Thomas, Barbara Sarneka, and Kyle Stanford, concerned about the epidemic of parental overreach, make their case for what is lovingly referred to as free-range parenting. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Chancellor's Professor of Earth System Science, James Randerson. His research interests include climate carbon cycle feedbacks, the effects of fire on ecosystem function, and atmospheric composition, land cover change, remote sensing, tropical deforestation, climate change in Arctic and boreal ecosystems, terrestrial ecosystems, and climate policy. James Randerson conducts fieldwork in Alaska and Siberia, as well as the Amazon. Professor Randerson's work includes over 159 publications. His research has been recognized by awards from NASA, the Department of Energy, American Geophysical Union, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, also known as NOAA, among other uh, agencies and institutions. He's completed his Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry and his PhD in Biological Sciences at Stanford University. He joins me in studio today to talk about Western wildfires, which we experience quite a bit right around here, and climate change. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor Jim Randerson. It's nice to be here, Claudia. So before we dive into your particular work, if you were watching the presidential debate last night, what did you make of the glancing attention given to climate change? Like Lester Holt apparently forgot he had 100 million people that could have been listening to a very teachable moment. Well, I'm hoping that it will come up as a primary topic in either the vice presidential uh, debate coming on or one of the following debates with the uh, presidential candidates, because I think it's so important and it will have a really big influence on our um, national security and our ability to um, thrive as a nation over the next several decades. So you are such a renaissance scientist covering meteorology. I'm trying to keep track of what I could see all over your work. Meteorology, hydrology, biology, chemistry, and even a little economic modeling. That's particularly demanding for an academic, isn't it, to cover so much territory, if you'll excuse the pun? Well, when I started, uh, there wasn't really a discipline of Earth System Science. And UCI actually has one of the first Earth System Science departments uh, that was formed by uh, our former chancellor, Ralph Cicerone. And so now students can get that taste of biology, chemistry, economics, and physics that's really required to understand how the Earth is changing and how it's changing over the span of a human lifetime. So when I started, I had to start with biology, then I moved to chemistry, I didn't know what I was doing, then I was in a geology department, ended up in an engineering department, and so you get these different flavors, and that's really required to understand and really design solutions for climate change. The, the Renaissance Department of Earth System <laughs> Science. So that's, and it, what is that? It was 20 years old, I guess, when it was being recognized when President Obama gave the commencement address and acknowledging that it was the first, this is the first institution to institutionalize that coursework, that's, that sort of grouping of studies. So, it, and you found it. You knew finally you could find a home for all those things that pulled your attention. Yeah, it's it's really exciting department to be in. There are people who are studying oceanography, biology, uh, how the ice sheets are changing. 
and how the um, atmospheric ozone layer is uh, changing and recovering. And so it's really a wonderful atmosphere. And now there are dozens of departments around the country and around the world that do Earth system science. We recognize the importance of studying the Earth as an integrated system, and it really spans multiple disciplines. And economics are important, as well as the basic chemistry and biology and physics. And that integration it isn't really important because of it, how complex it is, how how compelling it is, how uh, ex how ca catastrophic the the trends are, and so um, yeah, it can be. That's essential. So, how is climate change influencing wildfires in boreal forests? So, part of my why research, should we be concerned about it? Well, so part of my research program is focused in Alaska and Siberia, and there we have the potential for a, a vicious feedback, where. Uh, the, earth, the Earth is warming, and it's warming faster at high latitudes. It's warming faster in the Arctic, and that's because snow is melting back, and there's more water vapor in the atmosphere. And as a result of this increased warming, it's actually changing ecosystems in a fundamental way. And unfortunately, there's about an atmosphere, or two atmospheres worth of carbon that's stored in the soils of permafrost. It's locked away. Just it's in that one area. Just in one area, just in that one we're biome. Not keep, we're not talking about any other land masses that are thawing out. No. Just, so this must, oh gosh, it's worse than I thought. So it's, yeah, so there's a tremendous amount of carbon there. It's warming faster, and unfortunately, lightning and, and wildfires can serve as a trigger that releases some of that carbon. And so that's why it's really important to understand how wildfires are changing in Alaska. And so this rate you're talking about, it's more, it's more exponential than a straight line. Yes. It's not linear, folks. That's correct. And that's very daunting. That's right. The warming has been uh, accelerating, and we expect it to further increase uh, over the remainder of the 21st century. But ultimately, the amount of warming will depend on the steps we take to mitigate the problem and to, to limit our emissions. So why, um, why the two large fires back-to-back -back in Alaska, 2014 and 2015? What do we know about that? Well, there, yeah, there were, the Northwest Territories in Canada experienced a tremendous uh, fire season. Uh, it's really a complex of, of uh, hundreds of fires across the landscape. And the fires were so intense and they created such a smoke plume that it actually cut off villages uh, from air transport and from ground transport. And so it really influences uh, Native American people and how they're um, able to conduct their lives in the north. And the same in Alaska in 2015, a huge complex of wildfires and it influenced air quality across Fairbanks and it's it's actually changing the ecosystems and it's outside the norm when you look at the record and the changes over the last decade there's above average wildfire activity and it's having an influence on both people uh, and ecosystem structure in addition to the carbon pool I was just talking about and so these are really important events and so we were trying to understand what's what's changing them what, what's what's causing them okay so I guess as you're modeling all this and taking all these in situ me measurements. So that mean, means it's you're not flying over with a satellite. In situ means you've put your instruments right there in the dirt. That's right. Okay. So uh, so there are probably any number of surprises. This is really a dawning for a scientist to uncover something you hadn't even expected before and you're trying. I, we, I know about the null hypothesis you're always using to test some ideas, but you probably get uh, you're getting surprises sprung on you all the damn time. Yeah. So what we're understanding and that was really kind of um, unique that came out of this work that's yes. exciting is that it looks like a lightning is a trigger for wildfires. And so uh, we, we've always known that lightning is important. It sets many of the remote fires in the region. But we believe there's a link between lightning now and climate change and that lightning will um, create uh, a situation where there will be more fires in the future and that lightning will move into the tundra in a way that really lightning hasn't existed there before. So how does the climate change affect lightning? Well, it, it warms and lightning is incredibly sensitive to the temperature. Oh, okay. Uh, and so when you warm up the surface, you can have more convective activity, more thunderstorms. And so it's actually oh. very sensitive to a tipping point that's right about the border between tundra and boreal forest. And so as the climate warms, uh, we expect that possibly that border will move north and that lightning will be able to move into tundra and, and trigger fires there and creating a vulnerability with that carbon that I mentioned earlier. Right. Oof. So uh, in the, the warming trends in the Arctic that release the carbon and defrost ice layers, well, we've talked about that that's exponential. So talk about the this feedback. It's a, I know it's a hugely complicated kind of a formula, but if you could give our lay ears a chance at understanding how this feedback accelerates 
the hazards that we're dealing with. Sure. So uh, this is one of the reasons I think that it's really important to take steps to limit our emissions uh, in the near term. And that means everywhere, folks. This is this is part where we all step up now. Limit our emissions at every stretch. And so one of the things that we're trying to understand better and one of the dangerous um, uh, features of the earth is that there is a potential for what's known as a positive feedback in which if we have a little bit of uh, anthropogenic warming and it man does caused. man cause triggering a loss triggering a uh, warming and melting of this permafrost more fires in the north it'll release carbon into the atmosphere and that will further accelerate climate warming and so the more the system progresses, the more difficult it might be to manage and to actually have the Earth remain in a stable state. So if we take steps early on, then potentially the amount of melting and carbon loss will be low, and it'll be easy, easy to stabilize the Earth at a level that provides a lot of services and value to humans and to species. But if we allow the system to continue to, the carbon dioxide to continue to build up, then we may run into a situation where we get what are known as these runaway feedbacks, and, and that um, makes it much more challenging and much more costly to contain the damages. And you have in a lovely talk you've given, the Discover, I'm trying to think of the format on YouTube, and, and you give voices, us a, yeah. a picture of the, the carbon stored underground and how the depletion of the, the more organic matter then releases all of this, it's sort of like, it's like a big fat barbecue that all the, 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 the cooker, the Weber is just, uh, you know, torched with the exposure and the release of all of that carbon just under the, just barely under the bed of the, the vegetation. That's right. And it's, just, it's really remarkable when you look at these soils in Siberia or Alaska and you say, ah, oh, here's a leaf. And it looks like maybe the leaf is a couple years old. But when you do a radiocarbon date on it, how old? It might be ten thousand or or twenty thousand years old, and it's just so well preserved because it's frozen. And so that carbon, when it when it <sighs> when it melts, when the soils melt, it will just be uh, exposed to the atmosphere, and it will start to decompose. So, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Chancellor's Professor of Earth System Science, James Ranerson, whose UCI lab, in his own name, studies biogeochemical cycles for an understanding of climate cycle feedbacks, land use change, and the effects of fire on ecosystem function and atmospheric composition. Well, these fires have impacts that you uh, bring to our attention that uh, there there's a number of them. There's, it's not just the burned area, but the smoke is the, it's creating more emissions in the atmosphere, and it's, these particulates are dropping offshore, and there is a consequence. Yeah. That's one thing that we're really excited to study in our department is in Southern California, in our backyard. Terrified in their excitement. Well, terrified, right. And, <laughs> but it's, it's an interesting uh, link between the land and the ocean and that we have these uh, Santa Ana fires every fall. And they, the, the winds are so extreme that they blow a lot of the smoke offshore, uh, sometimes hundreds of miles offshore. And so we're really interested in starting a collaboration in our system science to, under, to try to study what does that smoke do when it hits the surface of the sea. It actually has a lot of iron and nitrogen and phosphorus in it, and that can stimulate a phytoplankton bloom. So that's a topic that we're hoping to explore over the next, uh, next decade. But the Santa Ana fires and the and the summer fires are are definitely changing as a in response to climate change. Well, you know, this makes me wonder while we're talking about this, this is a little off the script here, but is it hard to get funded to keep working on this? Or, well, I mean, I know there's a sort of a uh, there's competition with great work being uh, done with the National Institutes of Health, but are are you're coming up with such compelling and uh, daunting trends here? Is it difficult to get NASA, Department of Energy, all those people to say, okay, here, how much, you know, they don't write out the checkbook just like that. There's jurying and reviews and things like that. But is it difficult for them to, to understand how important it is to fund all that you want to do? Well, I, I think um, I'm, I'm really grateful for support from NASA and the Department of Energy, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. So a number of uh, federal agencies and, and foundations really have identified climate change as an important um, objective for um, for investing research and trying to improve our ability to basically make sound policy decisions. And so I do feel like it, there is support, 
though for some uh, ideas and looking at really long, deep time uh, perspectives, I, I guess as a scientist, I always wish there was there was more support for, I understand. for this field. But I, I, I think that the um, U.S. federal government does have a very a comprehensive plan for trying to elucidate and, and give policymakers the information they need to understand how the earth will change for different scenarios of how we make decisions about our energy, our energy policy. And it would help if on the, the Hill there was a, a deeper appreciation for the anthropogenic basis for climate change. And that, that, that's going to change. It's just, it's just has to change in the next couple of months. Right. I've got to, I've got to think. Yeah. There's, there's, this, it's, there's no question that uh, climate change is a, a a very important and well-documented scientific idea, and I feel that it's it's legitimate to have a policy discussion about what the um, economic trade-offs are about either paying paying now for uh, limiting emissions or paying later for the damages that we incur from these changes. And many of my colleagues, and, and I believe that very strongly that the damages will continue to build, and those costs will outweigh any investment in a clean energy economy. Uh, and so that's why we really have to take steps in the in the near future to keep limit reminding our the policymakers that I'm a scientist and I understand that economic impact of deferring on this disaster. Well, we were talking about the the Santa Ana fires, but back to the topic of how do the summer and the fall Santa Ana fires differ in impact and sensitivity to the climate? I know you've talked a lot about that, so we get to hear from you directly live. Sure. Yeah. Well, so this is a great study that we conducted. It was led by uh, Yu Feng Jin, who's now an assistant professor at UC Davis, and also uh, with Alex Hall at UCLA. So it was a really nice uh, University of California collaboration. And we were able to actually quantitatively separate out in a new way okay. all the long-term fire records into those that are occurring during periods of intense winds during the Santa Anas and those that occur during other periods. And they so did, did Monday... Or was it Sunday? Did Sunday creep you out? That was a hot, dry one. Yeah. So those in. are those are extreme. The the um, bothered me. The fire danger uh, scales nonlinearly with temperature because it's really driving the moisture out of the fuels, and so that was a, a very high uh, fire risk period. And the National Weather Service came out and said it. Yeah. And so we were able to do this uh, analysis where we actually separated for the first time. The fires fell out in these two really nice categories: summer fires and fall Santa Ana fires. And then we were able to actually quantify the economic impacts of the two different fire types in Southern California, as well as their sensitivity to climate. And so that was a, an, an exciting study. Yeah, well, that I, you know, I always wonder how climate scientists can sleep nights knowing all that you know. I ask all of the climate scientists that come on Ask a Leader, how do you sleep? <laughs> well, I'm usually really tired. And I sleep. You're, you're, well, that's actually, that's what Jay Familietti says. He's so <laughs> exhausted, but but he says it. It's not. Uh, it's not coming. It's not coming easy. That's for sure. Yeah. So we talked about that wildfires are affecting the biota. So and the interaction of emissions of fires. Let's talk about what El Nino poses in terms of the release of carbon. With and I, I thought it was fascinating. El Nino is a, creates a drop in the water table, yes. and there we have a problem, Houston. Yes, that's right. Well, so yeah, in general, dropping the water table often leads to a carbon buildup, and so that can happen through um, plants undergoing stress and dying and releasing the carbon that they were um, storing in their tissues, and also through wildfires. And so. El Nino actually gives this predictability of the global carbon cycle on how much carbon dioxide will accumulate in the global atmosphere because it leads to this predictable teleconnection across the world wow. and it leads to drought across the tropics. And that drought slows down rates of uh, photosynthesis and it also accelerates fires. And it does this in a really nice cascade where it starts in Indonesia and then it moves to Asia, then it moves to Central America. And then finally, you think we're done with El Nino, but we're not. Central, uh, South America, the Amazon is actually now in its dry season following El Nino. And as a consequence you can watch of, of the, uh, the drought that happened last winter during their wet season, there's not enough water for the trees to transpire and keep them going through the dry season. So now the humidity is dropping and Actually, it's a matchbox. Yeah, it's a matchbox. And so the, they're actually the fires now in many areas of the Amazon are well above average as a consequence of El Nino. So, so there's this interaction between humans and this variability from El Nino that leads to a very high sensitivity and a vulnerability of forests. So this model allows you to predict that hazard so there can be something proactive done around that tinderbox, or is there? We think so. So Because we, we think we can, we've developed with uh, support from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation a way to make an early warning system 
that actually predicts whether it's going to be a high or low fire risk year for the Amazon. And they're getting that now? They're, they have the memo? We, well, we, so we released our forecasts, our experimental okay. forecasts, and we, uh, it was actually publicly released, and it was picked up by a number of newspapers in Central and South America. And so we are trying to get the word out. We also shared it with Forest Service and Brazilian colleagues. So it, yeah, the agencies, not the media. Yeah, too. and, we, and, and there are steps. Like and if they you, connect. Yeah, and I think, I think there are policy steps as well. Like that not only could you hire more seasonal firefighters in a year of extreme risk, but there also may be steps where you could uh, provide incentives to landowners to not to burn right. and wait until it's a low um, a low risk year, and that might actually preserve the forest because these forests are really different from Santa Ana fires. Here we have fires that are unstoppable that move incredibly fast. And yeah. in the Amazon, they're actually these slow creeping fires, and they just you could step over them. They're so weak, but the trees have not adapted to these right. fires, and so even though it's a creeping slow fire, it will kill. Uh, when the fire moves through, it'll burn through the very uh, thin bark, and something like 20 to 40 percent of the trees will die. Which was also the problem with the sequoias. The thin bark makes them more oh, vulnerable, okay. too. Well, so, that not, yeah, so the sequoias are almost the other extreme. So they have a foot or two feet of bark, and they're oh, really Oh, I'm sorry. Thick. I got the wrong one. Is it the redwoods that have the thin bark? Well, no. So those, I think I, uh, those are really ones that are, are really fire adapted and so they're actually uh, they're actually bringing fire back so I must have got ecosystem. my trees mixed up I, yeah, but well I, no it's, it's they're actually it's their competitors it's the little spruce and things are not as that's the, the ones okay. and so they're trying to knock those out so that the sequoias then can do better in terms of the water supplies and okay. they recognize that you can see if you look into the bark and into the um that if you look at the records and the tree rings you can see how these sequoia trees have survived and for a while before there was really good scientific management, it wasn't appreciated how critical fire right. was for that ecosystem. And now they're bringing it back and, and really trying to cut down the competition from some of the smaller firs. A Science Friday covered that last week. It was cool. Oh, neat. They, yeah, it was very good. Um, so so anyway, back to the Amazon. So that yes. they're sitting ducks, those hardwood, they're hardwood forests, but yes. with a thin bark. Very the, thin bark. It's hard very inside, thin. but once yes. you get under the bark, though, that hardwood is very prone to burning. That's correct. And, and right, Ouch, I right, didn't realize. Yeah, and right near the surface is where the tree has um, cambium and a very sensitive set of cells. And okay. so once you kill that, then it's really difficult to send uh, food down to the roots and the trees right. will die. So you don't have to go deep into the, um, into the hardwood of a tree to kill it. Well, so, so what makes the tropical forest in central, we've talked about that too, what makes them so vulnerable uh, yeah. than other areas? But it's so, changing too. But it's changing. And so the connection with us and the... the South American c tropical forests are our consumption patterns. If we're going to continue to eat beef, then we're going to continue to deforest the continent in South America. So there's there's one connection the consumer has with that hazard. That's right. I mean, there, any there, others? Well, I mean, yeah, I think that there really is a, a a triple threat to the Amazon. The Amazon's really unique. It's got most of the biodiversity on Earth. It's a biodiversity hotspot, and it's under a triple threat from Climate change effects, which tended to dry the northern part of the Amazon, deforestation, and if you cut those trees down, then you are limiting the amount of transpiration. So there's a potential positive feedback, and many Brazilian scientists are working on that and, and documenting that. And unfortunately, the third element is that just rising carbon dioxide by itself actually causes the these little tiny pores on the bottom of leaves to close, and that also limits the amount of water that's evaporating in the atmosphere, and it dries out the region. And so those things together make the Amazon, we believe, uh, more vulnerable to climate change than other tropical forests like in Africa and in Indonesia. And so, and it's really? so connected economically with us, the Central and South America, we, yeah, there's so many ties with trade, right. with, um, with agriculture. And we're looking at a future where the Central and South America are dries drier. up literally. Drier. Yeah, it dries up. Yeah. Completely. Well, how, if at all, does the Paris Climate Agreement address fire management and emissions policies? There's, there's really two, I think, two ways. One is that there are mechanisms that are built in. Each country has to self-report its emissions. And so for tropical countries, by taking steps to limit deforestation and cut back on fires that lead to a degradation of the carbon stocks, they can get credit and they um, what kind of credit? Well, they get they actually get um, they can meet Emission their commitments. Well, yeah, they meet their commitments for the treaty by taking these steps. And there are also a lot of agreements between countries, for example, Norway and Indonesia, to limit to try to create policies to to limit deforestation. So that's one direct way. But then the other way I think is that if the Paris Agreement sets out a very nice framework for limiting emissions, and th we can already see in the Western United States that the summer fire season is becoming, the fires are getting larger. 
droughts and longer seasons. And there's a longer fire season. And if we do not take the steps through the Paris Agreement to limit emissions, then it's going to become more difficult and more costly for us to contain wildfires. And in my opinion, it's going to become increasingly critical that we take steps to manage these fires because they can lead to loss of species and they can really have a inflict a lot of damage on communities, both through the smoke and through structural damages. So it's, it's a major threat. And so it will become worse if we don't take steps to limit emissions. So are you able to give some suggestions about managing, managing wildfires? Fires? Well, I think, I mean, that's really, there's a whole really nice uh, set of uh, scientists and managers are working on it within CAL FIRE in California. And uh, I work closely with uh, fire managers. I was just up in Alaska, actually, last week at a meeting with fire managers in interior Alaska talking about smoke and how we can do research to limit smoke damages. And so I think that there are really extensive plans. I don't know if I have any direct policy prescriptions, but I, I do think that our work on Santa Ana and summer fires suggests that the economic impacts of the two fire types are really different, and there may be ways to try to um, further optimize resources in the West to further target Santa Ana fires because they're so damaging, they happen so quickly, and that the impacts are actually 10 times higher than summer fires, yet our investments in suppression are about the same. Right, right, so, right. Yeah. More more houses lost and more area. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, more houses lost, more housing value lost, um, more, um, unfortunately, more civilian and firefighter uh, fatalities. That's and right. So yeah. it's, yeah. Well, the uh, terrestrial carbon reservoir um, trend of the carbon storage in the ground, it's not at all promising. You've said it's like a 27% reduction, and you're telling us and that that rate's only going to go up in percentage, increasing. So we're uh, that's that's right. I, that's I know I said daunted six no, times. Yeah. So, but it's no. It's so yeah, we just yeah we had a, a study that was published in Science this uh, last week. Congratulations. Thank you. And, and in the study, we uh, documented that the potential for soils to take up carbon in response to increasing CO two may actually be considerably lower than what uh, previous estimates had pinned it at. And so we think that um, the soils are not going to be this panacea that limits the buildup of carbon dioxide, and we are going to have to take steps, again, to really limit emissions. So th it's p there's a potential that fossil fuels will build up at a faster rate than some of these Earth system models had predicted. Well, I'd like to close with a, a wide-eyed question. It may mm. be public shaming. It's not meant to be. It's, <laughs> a man, it's a meant to be a, a teachable and a moment of advancing. And I, I put in a query with UCI's Applied Innovations. They're the the incubator for bringing research to a economic application. And I asked them about whether they're involved in the climate change sector. You don't see it anywhere on their website. You see a lot of pharmaceutical enterprise and that kind of thing. I asked them a, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know, what would you make of the the uh, lack of a response? Do you think that, the, that your models are sort of too far out for some kind of a uh, an enterprise to run with your findings and make some sort of economic product out of this. Well, I think I think UCI is really taking a lot of steps, and where I would say not not with respect to climate change innovation directly, but really on clean energy. There's initiatives for uh, hydrogen, and I I believe there are initiatives within the innovation on clean energy on solar. And I would also point out, like with Wendell uh, Brassi's leadership. UCI is uh, an incredibly sustainable campus. And we've taken steps to really limit our, our total amount of um, electricity use and fossil fuel consumption. And we're, now we're actually generating energy and placing it back on the grid. And so I think UCI is really a leader and we get recognized by like the Sierra Club and a lot of indicators for being a really green campus. And so that I would look at that broader picture that, okay. that UCI is uh, nibbling is around a, the edges. It's it's a, it's a leader, and I think that I think it is really neat to see that they're they're UCI is spawning this incubator um, development right. um, uh, ecosystem. And I I do expect that you will see clean energy technologies come out of that. Maybe that <laughs> support will be exponential, along with all these harrowing trends and sort of increased more. There'll be more and more money made off of being an advanced. Uh, participant in climate change. There has to be. Economic yeah, we, yeah. So, well, I want to thank you so much for, for being on the show. I was just talking with James Randerson, UCI Chancellor's Professor of Earth System Science here at UCI. Thanks for coming down and sharing with us all this really incredible work. And I always like to leave an opportunity for you to come back and post us on some new science. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Claudia. It's my pleasure. 
Okay, thanks. We'll be right back after uh, a short break, and we're going to bring on our trio of researchers, Ashley Joe Thomas, Kyle Stanford, and Barbara Sarneka on the free-range parenting and free-range kiddos. Be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guests are three disciplined researchers all about free-range child-rearing in our culture, or I say cultures. They are Ashley Joe Thomas, Kyle Stanford, and Barbara Sarneka. The focus for today is their recent publication, No Child Left Alone, Moral Judgments About Parents Affect Estimates of Risk to Children. First, Ashley Thomas is a PhD student in the Sarneka Cognitive Development Lab in the Cognitive Sciences Department at UCI. Prior to starting her doctoral work, she completed her BA at UC Berkeley, coursework at San Francisco State University, and her master's in psychology at UCI. Her research focuses on two areas. The first is social and moral cognition in babies and preschoolers and the relation between adults' perception of risk and their moral judgments. Hence, she's the major contributor to the publication of interest in today's interview. I'm particularly, she's particularly inter interested in how the two factors encourage new moral norms, and boy, they, they blow up in this article. She recently tied the knot and is barely back from her honeymoon. Her presence is very much appreciated. Congratulations, Ashley. Thank you. <laughs> Next is Kyle Stanford. He's been married a lot longer, so he's professor of logic and philosophy of science at the at UCI. He earned his BA in philosophy and psychology at Northwestern University, and both his MA and PhD from the University of San University of California at San Diego. He writes about the history and philosophy of science, the history and philosophy of biology, the philosophy of language, and the history of modern philosophy, but he's best known for his work on scientific realism. His book, Exceeding Our Grasp, Science, History, and the Problem of Unconceived Alternatives, argued that the most serious challenge to scientific realism arises from the long history of our repeated failures to conceive of theoretical alternatives, even when they were well confirmed by the evidence available to us at the time. So uh, that you'll see why we're, he's brought in when we get into the, the, the weeds of this publication. He served as both a visiting professor at the Department of History and Philosophy of Science and senior fellow of the Center for Philosophy and Science at the University of Pittsburgh, as well as a member of Philosophy of Science Association governing board. He currently serves as associate director for the Journal of Philosophy of Science. Finally, we have Professor Barbara Sarneka, who heads up the Cognitive Development Lab at UCI in her name. Her interests are how the mind is put together during childhood, you know, little, little workers putting tink, tink, tink together, and how children acquire number concepts. More recently, she's focused on the development of social cognition, as well as adult moral reasoning and risk perception. She has over 24 peer-reviewed publications. She makes full use of the Southern California laboratory of a wide variety of cultural, ethnic, linguistic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. Barbara Sarneka completed her BA in Russian and Japanese at the University of Iowa, then her master's in anthropology and her PhD in psychology at the University of Michigan. Barbara Sarneka and uh, Ashley Thompson and Kyle Stanford joined me in studio today. Welcome all to Ask a Leader. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, I, they're all right here. This is just a lot of firepower, and it's a, a, a lot of us have been turning over this topic for quite some time. I'm sure everyone's heard the baby boomers' common refrain, when I grew up, we played outside until the streetlights went on, then we came home. And we also, some of us assumed babysitting responsibilities when we barely reached puberty, it seems. So this notion of what amount of supervision is necessary has been turned on its head. How the heck did we get there? Here. 
Well, in our paper, we provide this evidence. This is Ashley. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. So in our paper, we propose what we call a feedback loop. Um, so we're, we're going to talk a different kind of feedback now. Yeah. <laughs> Where people started overestimating the risk to children who are left alone via the availability heuristic, which is where you overestimate the frequency of events based on how easy it is to call those events to mind. Um, and once people started overestimating the risk to children left alone, there became a new norm that made it morally wrong to do so. And so in our paper, we provide evidence that people's moral judgments actually affect how risky they think situations are for children who are left unsupervised. Well, that's a good time then for uh, you to tell us about the arenas in which you considered risks toward which children are exposed. You can t there's, there's five findings that you made. The first was violent crime, where we are with violent crime. That's the first. It's mm -hmm. an all-year, 50-year low. Oh, sure. So uh, sort of across the board, violent crime is down. And the rate, uh, I mean, the I, I I assume that the rate of child abduction has always been very low. But right, it has been. It, yeah, it's basically considered a 0% chance um, because of how um, not frequently it happens. Um, well, when I, when I was thinking about this, I was wondering, does the Amber Alert, does it's a device to respond in case there is an abduction, but does the visibility of the Amber Alert, does social media, do these things heighten the profile and therefore sort of help make people overestimate the actual risk of child abduction? Uh, well, that's actually an important part of the story. When Ashley talks about the availability this heuristic. This is Kyle Stanford. Part of what we think happened, right, uh, media coverage of very rare child abductions and other bad things happening to children uh, really exploded in the 1980s. And so even without any change in how dangerous the world is or, in fact, the world is, was actually getting less dangerous, people worried about it way more. It was easy to call to mind because they'd seen all the media coverage of it. And that was the thing that was first instituted the moral norm, right? It's, you're, not, it's not, you're not allowed to leave your, your kids alone anymore. And what we found in our study is that people are inflating the amount of risk that they assign to children who are uh, left on their own in order to better support those moral, that, their moral condemnation of the parents who do so. That's a different feedback loop. <laughs> Just so. They're, they're always, the, the interactive effects are everywhere, under every rock. So uh, then the next is the, well, that was the second child abduction after violent crime. Car accidents are the leading cause of death among children. That's another risk that's not properly, properly estimated. Well, our study, this, this is, is Barbara. Barbara. Um, our study started out by talking about the relative frequency of different events that are bad that happen to kids, but that's not actually what we studied. So we introduced the study by saying the things that are actually likely to hurt kids or kill kids are not the same things that people are really, really worried about. And so we use car accidents as an example because car accidents are the number one cause of accidental death, I think it is, for kids between 5 and 14. And that's something that it's still pretty safe to drive your kids around in a car. It's like one out of 29,000 or something kids get killed in car accidents. Um, but it's low enough risk that we don't think twice about driving our kids someplace in a car. But that's that risk is still it's 20 times higher, 25 yes. times higher than the risk of them being abducted. And we worry a lot about them being abducted, which doesn't make much sense. Exactly. Actually, I remember when I thought the parent thought they were doing me some child care favor and they popped my child in the car and they did errands and I thought what a, I, I was so nonplussed so now on to the next is the lack of exercise is a contributing factor to short and long-term health risk for children so that's this is where the the declaration of rights comes in is about uh, that let's give the kids more independence kids all right let's let them be out and be more active be on their own who wants to take up that one well this kind of falls under the category of what the consequences are of the kind of hysterical parenting norm that we have in place now and the Hysteric, widespread yeah. uh, panic, right, uh, untethered to any evidence of actual risk uh, that we regard children as being in when they're alone. It's, but uh, the denying uh, children the same kind of independence and 
opportunities to make mistakes and figure things out themselves and solve problems themselves that uh, that all of us had in the baby boomer generation when we played until the uh, the streetlights came on. Uh, that's really just one of the the kind of uh, negative consequences that we see as coming out of this entirely unjustifiable parenting norm, right? Others would include a, the entrenchment of a kind of class privilege because not everyone can afford to have their to, to meet this irrational demand that children be uh, be supervised all the time. But of course, the biggest one. I'm glad you brought that up. We can, we're going to unpackage that even more in a bit. Yeah. Okay, the, I'll ahead. just mention that the yes. what we think the biggest one is is in the legal context where I mean part of what motivated this research for us and what I think yeah. lots of people now see in news stories you know every uh, every once in a while is parents actually being arrested prosecuted incarcerated for leaving their children alone in what are actually very low risk circumstances and at, at a minimum we're hoping that finding out that moral judgments are really at the root of those risk estimates will uh, allow us to to stop treating children left alone as an uh, uh, in the within the legal system as actionable or criminal activity right when the actual risks of of doing it in many circumstances are very low and i guess there's a kind of everybody gets to play moral morality cop with their cell phone they all can just pull it out they don't have to run to a phone booth they can just sort of like i see an offense going down i'm I'm all about reporting at Peronto. So it's sort of, there's another feedback loop. It's just like more, more tools to sort of weigh in there. Well, why don't we go through the actual rights of children, and we'll talk about more about what your findings are, that the, the rights of children to freedom of movement. Does somebody want to go through those, or I can? Um, I think, uh, Claudia, what you're thinking of is um, something we shared uh, earlier, which was, this is Barbara, uh, the free-range kids. Lenore Skenazy is an author and a blogger and um, kind of a media personality who started this website called yes, the Free Range Kids right. website. But it's and good. I want to bring has, that in here. Yeah. yeah, and she has published a Free Range Kids Bill of Rights. That's not actually connected to our paper, but it was something that I think you and I had talked about earlier right, right. Uh, that I said I think it's reasonable to for communities or parents who are um, interested in this topic who are wondering you know what it's can I do call if, to action here yeah like okay. if I want to give my kids a little more responsibility or independence or I want to have that conversation in my community where do I start and so I was saying that this uh, I think when you and I talked earlier I mentioned that on the free range kids website there's a free range kids bill of rights that includes things like kids have a right to a little bit of unsupervised time of course in an age-appropriate circumstance and that you know parents have the right to give it to them without being arrested I'll, I'll go ahead and put the link up to the the children's rights and the the others uh, the parents rights here so let's go into let me just clarify yes. Claudia of yeah. course all of us um, are talking about age-appropriate situation For, appropriate situation so um, I have two kids Kyle has one kid you know, we're very responsible parents. We would never advocate leaving, you know, little toddlers alone around unfenced swimming pools or something that's genuinely dangerous, something that genuinely poses a statistically measurable immediate risk to their safety. So we're not saying everybody but then should that's always not, you, leave the kids scenarios alone. in your publication go to what's actually happening. But what I noticed in the the scenarios is that it was a kind of an all or nothing proposition. You either had your child care backup or you did it alone. And I wasn't sure if there was a kind of a range where, you know, if the grandparent wasn't available, so parent A had to drop the child off at Starbucks or leave them at the park or leave them in the car. And I'm thinking, is is that where we are? Is it we either have our plan A or we, we, we're, we do it alone immediately after that? I, I was wondering what that kind of had to say social commentary. So in each of the scenarios, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but in each of the scenarios, when the parent chose to leave the child alone, it was because the, the we made it so they were all as equal as possible. So there was always like a backup that fell through. And so then they made the choice to go okay. do their planned activity. So it was sort of to force that kind of, now yeah. can they can they be self-sufficient? But I, right. there was that little commentary. I was thinking like, gosh, if you don't have a grandparent, are we really on our own? Are we that sort of fragmented in our uh, social networks? But that that's not the point. Right. Okay. Yeah. I digressed. So okay. so let's talk a bit then about your findings, how people's estimations of danger 
facing children, it colors their perception that parents have done something morally wrong in allowing their children any, and that's in bold fonts, any unsupervised time. Ashley? Right. So um, one of the most interesting findings we had was that even in situations uh, that we meant to be completely accidental and unintentional, where the, ch- the parent steps away for, takes a couple of steps away from a car, for example, people still rated that situation when we asked them how immoral this is as a three out of 10 um, on average. So it sort of goes to show that people really have these very strong moral judgments when it comes to cases where parents are leaving their children alone. And then sort of the main finding of our paper is that these moral judgments actually influence how risky they think the situations were. So even though the children were left alone in the same place for the same amount of time and with the same at the same age, when a parent left on accident when they were hit by a car and rushed to the hospital and nobody knew there was a parent, in the, a child in the car, then or people... they didn't know they were left at Starbucks. It was quite a range you've given us. Sure, yeah. Um, people rated those situations as safer than situations when the parent made a choice, a conscious choice to leave the child alone. Any other observations from Kyle, Barbara? Well, this is Barbara. I think what's interesting about that is that there, there are two ways that you could think about that in yes. real life, the risk, um, and both of them are the opposite of what people, the judgment people made in the study, right? So, or both of them are not, uh, not that judgment. So one way you could think about it is to say, logically, if the child is the same age and it's the same kid in the same place for the same amount of time, then the risks should be exactly the same. Right. But um, you, can, you can quickly give us the scenarios, that, the difference there. Uh, it's somebody who's... So the scenarios are like, it was like a 10-month-old baby asleep in a car in a cool underground parking garage for 10 minutes, a two-year-old child who was eating a snack and watching the movie Frozen uh, on the living room floor at home, a four-year-old who was, I think, playing on an iPad uh, in a car that was parked outside in front of a grocery store, Um, cool, I think it was a cool day, we said. We wanted to make sure people weren't worried about the cars being hot or the children overheating in the cars. Right, right. Um, A six-year-old who was at the park for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, something like that. And then an eight-year-old who was at Starbucks for 45 minutes reading a book. Starbucks with cash. Yeah, (laughs) with money, with a snack, reading a book. Lengthen that day. So logically, it should be the case that all the risks are the same. Right. Regardless of why the mother left or what the mother or the father is doing elsewhere, the eight-year-old at Starbucks eating a snack and reading a book should be under at exactly the same amount of risk whether her father was unconscious in the street or off meeting his lover, right? Um, Another way to think about it in practical real-world terms is that children are almost certainly safer when their parents choose to leave them alone because then the parents can take it's planned to can plan it and they can say okay in all the terms right like honey what's my cell phone number you know i'll be back in half an hour Encourage make sure that you only eat one chocolate donut assurance. and not three yeah and if you eat all the chocolate donuts then i'm not going to let you be at starbucks next time you know? right right so a whole uh, very life affirming uh, i mean a life skill forming kind of a uh, downloading there right the so when when parents door. leave intentionally somebody the parent yes. is making a choice and saying i think that this child is mature enough and responsible enough and that this situation is safe enough that it's appropriate for me to leave for this period of time and i'll make sure that there's no boiling water on the stove and sharp knives sitting on the table or whatever right, right. but people thought the opposite people thought that when parents left on purpose the kids were in more danger which is indication that it was a moral judgment For those of you who've just joined Ask a Leader this morning, my guests are researchers Ashley Jo Thomas, Barbara Sarneka, and Kyle Stanford about their research recently published under the title, No Child Left Alone, Moral Judgments About Parents Affect Estimates of Risks to Children. So are schools a a player in supporting better choices on the children's behalf? Because I can recall some real resistance to uh, letting kiddos you know, commute uh, on their own with the cars. When Vista Verde was uh, first opened their new building in 2005. So, I mean, there's a lot of players involved here. Well, there are. And part of what we think is happening is actually these attitudes about um, what's an acceptable risk to children and when children are under in a lot of risk have sort of percolated out everywhere, right? And so people aren't aware of where these attitudes or judgments about risk are coming from. 
And so everybody sort of unselfconsciously just trusts their own gut sense of when a child is in danger. We just yeah. we, we uh, just just heard uh, uh, recently about the the right with schools coming into new funds that they haven't had for a long time and choosing to use them to install closed circuit uh, security Ugh. cameras everywhere. Uh, because that panic about what would what can happen to a child when yeah. no adult is supervising them is entirely widespread. It's also why it matters in the legal system because those same unreflective intuitions, those same unreflective gut judgments about what's risky to a child are the ones that cops are carrying around and right. prosecutors are carrying around and judges are carrying around. And nobody's thought to stop and ask the question whether there's good objective evidence of real risks in the situations that they regard that way. So with the research that you've surveyed these, uh, the, I'm not clear on the demographics. I don't know if you can talk about, you know, it did it matter how old the parent moralizing was? Did it matter how old they were? Did it matter how conservative or uh, if it's a, uh, I mean, we you broke it down. We understand uh, how, uh, and, and do we know whether it was an urban, a suburban, or rural kind of setting? How heterogeneous was the community? Um, can, I sure. don't know if you broke that down. Sure. So the way that this we, is Ashley. The way that we collected the data was on what's called Amazon Turk, which is something online that you can pay people to do small and tasks. That's open up around the country. That's what I couldn't find out when I was trying yes. to track down. Yes, it's actually vehicle. open up around the world, but okay. we constricted our Your survey parameters. to people in the U United States. So it could have been all be over, and they had to weigh mm -hmm. in and say, "I'm from rural Vermont. I'm from Santa Ana. I'm from." Atlanta. You yeah. Can tell that. Yes. Yeah. So um, they're from all over the country. They were mostly white and at least with a bachelor degree. Um, but one thing we did find is that men with no children and women with no children yeah. tended to estimate the risk as lower. Yeah. But the that effect, makes such sense to but me. But the effect was still there. Yeah. So they okay. still rated the intentional conditions as more risky than the unintentional conditions. Okay. I know there's so much more to talk about in this research. I'm asking for a a, an open invitation. We can pick up more about where we left off. So I want to thank you all for, for coming in today. My guests were Ashley Thomas, Kyle Stanford, Barbara Sarneka, all from the, the Sarneka lab doing great work, the cognitive science lab. So the announcements are the following. We have on today at the Ayala School of Biosciences, they're going to be screening the fly room tonight, 6 to 8, if you're listening to the show live. The Crystal Cove Auditorium, it's free. And for more information, you can go to their bioscience, uh, their bioscience website. Tomorrow night is the League of Women Voters talking at the Duck Club at the Irvine Ranch Water District. That's going to start at 6.30. Things are actually rolling at 7. And Thursday night here on campus, the Chamber of Commerce is going to be running the, uh, they're going to have a candidates forum here. It's free to the public and it starts 5.30 and goes to 8.30. Thanks for listening. Talk to you all next week. Oh my goodness, look at this mess. I'm the one who made it, I do confess. Oh my goodness, look at this mess. I think I better clean it up. Everybody sing.